This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. The path of the Dharma really requires that we develop the courage to look beyond our distractedness, to find what lies behind it, and to not necessarily feed ourselves with ongoing entertainment. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Okay, well, welcome. I would like to talk today about being distracted from boundless awareness. Distraction is a very interesting notion. At one level, of course, nothing is a distraction. Everything is a reflection of wholeness. But in Buddhism, particularly, they don't really talk about distraction so much as about the wandering mind, that if you're with something, it's not a distraction. And distractions don't really ever disappear. Uh, a couple of stories. The first place I ever really meditated was at the Page Street San Francisco Zen Center with Suzuki Roshi. And the the meditation room was slightly below ground level so that there were these windows up at the top of the walls that were on sidewalk level and you'd be meditating there and there'd be people doing drug deals right up above your head <laughs> right you could hear the whole the whole conversation about how much people are going to pay for cocaine or whatever heroin or whatever was going on right and then i went to india and i thought okay now i'm going to be really able to meditate it's going to be quiet and a bunch of us were meditating in bodh gaya the place where the Buddha got enlightened at the Burmese Vihar, the Burmese temple, if you will. It was a very quiet place. It was on a dirt road going into town. And you'd be sitting there meditating and you'd hear this cart being pulled by a water buffalo. And the water buffalo had a bell on its neck. And you could hear the bell go cling clang. And you could hear it from about a mile away, and slowly, slowly, it would get closer to the temple. And then, then you could start hearing it going the other direction, right? So for like about half an hour, the buffalo is walking really slowly. You're thinking, I'm, when is that damn buffalo going to be gone so I can meditate again, right? So the point, of course, is that there's always distraction. And what I'd like to talk about today is how to deal with that. Uh, we live in a world where there's wars going on, where uh, people that I know, friends that I know, are so bothered by the wars that their minds are tied in a knot. People are, wait till this next election starts happening in, in some more intense way. I, I assure you that the country is going to get uh, the, the temperature is going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. It's going to be a very difficult place. I, I remember teaching a group seven years ago in Sheila's living room. And we had the group on Tuesday. So we were going to have a party for Hillary Clinton's election. <laughs> All the people brought food. We were so excited. The first woman president. And we sat around and watched the watch. <laughs> It was the worst party I've ever been in of my life. But anyway, that's what happened. <laughs> so distraction means being pulled away. 
And one can deal with this in a very Buddhist way, which I'm going to talk about first, or one can deal with it in a more devotional way. And I've been trying this, this Buddhist way for so long. It's been an utter failure. I have to confess it. My, uh, the attempt to understand emptiness and bring it into manifestation on a moment-to-moment basis has not worked all that well. I've meditated till my knees fell off. They came back again. I have been at so many retreats. I've been with the best meditation teachers that money can buy. And still, and still, I've been noticing that when I'm out in the garden or when I'm walking from upstairs to downstairs or when I'm taking a shower, unless I'm really practicing, the mind just does its thing. So basically, there is this tendency to not want to feel, to be addicted to not feeling this fundamental anxiety because we're not resting in complete emptiness. We're we're pulled back from that. And there is often this, this, what could we call it, a, a pattern of going from, on one hand, being uh, bored, and then on the other hand, being distracted or wanting entertainment, back and forth. Boredom, distraction, slash entertainment. Boredom, and then uh, distraction, slash entertainment. I watch stuff on Netflix. Natalie can tell you this is true, that it has no human usefulness at all. It's like I watched Emily in Paris, the whole two seasons of it, right? For why I did that is because I didn't want to be bored. There's no other reason in the world to watch that show. Okay. So what's behind the ongoing restlessness the 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 path of the dharma really requires that we develop the courage to look beyond our distractedness to find what lies behind it and to not necessarily feed ourselves with ongoing entertainment with ongoing understanding the bible talks about the peace that passes understanding we have this distraction that's based in fear of fear of spaciousness fear of boundless emptiness we we can't even be friends with ourselves and we need to start the process first of all by beginning to see the clarity on the other side of all the distraction boredom has an edge to it we feel the ground slipping away we we struggle to find a solid ground to stand on there's nothing happening we feel we need to do something it's too quiet we need to make some noise so that that's the beginning. But then even beyond that, we, we need to go into wisdom mind. Can we calm down enough to go beyond distraction? And then the second step is going into wisdom mind. Okay, so here's what I've noticed. That almost everybody, a lot of the time, seems distracted. When you meet somebody who's not distracted, it's pretty great. It's pretty, it's pretty wonderful. And it, it doesn't happen all that often. So that the first stage is learning to work with distraction. When you're meditating, when you're quiet, when you're not doing anything, you're just sitting there looking out the window or you're meditating or you're walking very quietly. Can you begin to notice that impulse to fill up the space. Okay, so we've all done that. We've all been working with that. We've all meditated or chanted or prayed or a combination of the above. We've all done those practices. And then, and I'm pretty good at that. I can do that when nothing's going on. I've trained my mind so I can make my mind be quiet most of the time. Sit down to meditate after a few minutes, mind gets quiet. But then can we begin to bring that into simple activities? Can we bring that into taking a shower, chopping some vegetables, working in the garden, doing things that don't really take intellectual involvement? 
it's it's easier to be with bodily sensation. It's easier to be in the heart, whatever your practice is. But then, what about talking? What about writing? What about being on the internet? I get, I, I just counted two days ago as a bit, Busy day, I got 100 non-junk emails and then 100 junk emails in one day, right? Not all of these certainly required responses, but a lot of them did. Is it possible to be not distracted, to be present and being in the mind, doing these things and often dealing with people who are suffering, dealing with people who are distracted themselves? in the last week, I was talking to a dear friend whose ex-husband committed suicide, to another friend who I've known for five decades, who has a heart condition that the doctors say there's not much they can do about, another friend who got prostate cancer about seven years ago, and he decided he'd do the radiation instead of the surgery, and it's come back, and it's outside of his prostate. I got prostate cancer about 10 years ago. I did the surgery. He chose the radiation, which has fewer side effects, but now it's back. It's running around in his body. Hopefully they can stop it, but who knows where it is, right? They see where it is, but they don't see the microscopic microscopic stuff that's going on. Okay, so can we be not distracted even during strong emotion? Uh John and I talked before the meeting started, my co-host, and John has been telling me off and on over the last month or two, I don't know how long it is, how completely bothered he is by the uh, war that's going on in the Middle East. John is a Sufi. He sends me these beautiful Rumi poems about how much Rumi loves God and how much love is possible. And then he, after, after the Rumi poem, he tells me how much he hates humanity, <laughs> right? And is it possible, even when a war is going on, even when you see what horrific things have happened, both in Israel and in Gaza, that that doesn't distract you from openness, from boundless awareness? Okay. So the first way of dealing with this is really understanding emptiness, that every experience is a manifestation of emptiness. Every experience certainly has this human quality of there's me talking to you and you listening to me and you sitting in New Mexico or California or Georgia or Germany or wherever you happen to be. There's that reality, but there's also the reality that it's all pure consciousness that what we perceive as reality is neither real, reified, fixed, independently existing, nor is it non-real. And we could go into a whole long talk about the Heart Sutra, emptiness is form, form is emptiness, just like a dream is real, not really real, but it's not really non-real. Okay, just so is life. And there's we we've had podcasts about this in the past, meetings about this in the past. I don't really want to go into too much all the details of emptiness, but uh, one can do these practices. And certainly when one goes deeply enough into meditation, emptiness begins to reveal itself. Uh, it's, It's a tricky thing because we need to make friends with how we think we're non-empty. We can't just go into emptiness. We can't do this spiritual bypassing of not dealing with the personality qualities that are embedded in our bodies that make it difficult to be resting in emptiness. So that there's this back and forth between dealing with my human story and the human stories that are being presented to me day after day, this person, that person, okay, And at the same time, beginning to realize that it's all its all a dream. Somebody asked Maharaji, is life real or is it a dream? 
And he said, it, he said, it's completely real. It's completely a dream. And it's both at the same time. So he covered all the bases there. It's kind of hard to argue with that. Can we, though, appreciate that right now, this is completely real and it's completely a dream? We tend, we tend to cling to negative self-preoccupations. We, we, we need to develop a healthy sense of self in order to be able to bear resting in emptiness. There is this dear being, you, me, that's navigating life, that suffers, that gets old, loses people. Yet this is not the whole view. There are so many more dimensions. Okay, so if I'm annoyed, if I'm annoyed about the war, if I'm annoyed about getting 100 emails, if I'm annoyed about anything, it might be useful to access other ways of looking at life that even the emails are empty. Maybe they don't all need to be answered right now. Or who is this me? Who is this me that's getting caught up in all this stuff? Uh, there are these causes and conditions responsible for creating who I am and who you are. And by noticing the impermanent dreamlike nature of all these interactions, our hearts can open to the tenderness for both of us. So there's this wonderful saint, Tibetan saint, Nagarjuna, and he said, whenever there is a belief that things are real, desire and hatred spring up unendingly. Unwholesome views are entertained from which all disputes come. Indeed, this is the source of every view. Without it, no defilement can occur. Thus, when this is understood, all views and all afflictions vanish entirely. But how may this be known? It is said that when one sees that all things are dependently produced, one sees that such things are free from birth. So what he's talking about is this Buddhist notion of codependent arising, that everything is connected that the, the, the pain going on in the Middle East is connected with what's going on in Washington, D.C., which is connected with what's going on in Fairfax, California, which is connected with what's going on in my bedroom, which is what's connected with what's going on in my head, right? That, that it's not like this independent thing is going on out there, that the bad people are out there and I'm the good person sitting here. That when we really begin to get how interconnected we are, that when you see a homeless person, when you see a power-hungry politician, when you see somebody you care about who's suffering, when you see any of these things, you see that it's you in a very fundamental way. And it opens then a sense of mercy, of tenderness, of open-heartedness. Emptiness is the nature of the heart. The, the, the compassionate heart, the open heart, the loving heart has three defining qualities. One of them is spacious, empty, empty of grasping, just like that Nagarjuna quote said, a heart that's empty of grasping will be compassionate. The second quality of the open heart is a heart that's connected. Can you be connected to you? Can you be connected to the other? Can you be connected to, may I dare call it God, whatever that verticality is in your worldview? Be connected to the earth, but at least beginning by being connected to yourself. And that then leads to emptiness. Now, what I've been advertising here is that I've been looking at this stuff uh, from a kind of a Buddhist or Advaita Vedanta, Ramana Maharshi viewpoint. And I know there are people in the room, shout out to Francis, who really are great followers of Ramana. I, I love him dearly. But I, I am so mental myself. This is all my mathematical background. For me, I have had to find emptiness through devotion. And 
by going into the heart through devotion, I've begun to experience emptiness as a wonderful byproduct. Uh, once again, the heart is empty. Can I trust the heart? The open heart is empty of clinging. Can I trust the heart enough so that then this emptiness will reveal itself? When I was with Maharaji, and he, I mean, Ramdas and I and a bunch of people were getting kicked out of India because we'd overstayed our visas. The government gave us a quit India notice. Get out of here. You're going to be in big trouble. So I went to Maharaji and said, well, you know, I used to be a scientist when I was back in America. What do you want me to do when I go back home? And I thought he'd say, well, I'll become a therapist or a transpersonal this or that or something. And what he said was, just keep saying the mantra that I gave you, right? That was his only instruction. Just keep saying this mantra. Now, I think I'm really clever, right? And I'm very stubborn. So that injunction didn't sit too well with me. I wanted something sexier. I wanted, I wanted instructions that I could dig my mind into. And for a whole bunch of decades, Maharaji died 50 years ago last September. For 50 years, I've been struggling, which is saying my mantra, right? And I've finally given up, right? At this advanced age, I'm finally giving up. And just in every moment when I'm not talking to somebody, I'm trying to say my mantra. And what I've begun to find is that in doing that, this emptiness is revealed, this independent, this co dependent arising this interdependence is revealed in the sense that if i'm saying this mantra which is a name of god that maharaji gave me and i'm talking to you then you're that manifestation of that or when i'm just sitting alone thinking about israel or gaza or donald trump or uh the 49ers or you know whatever i'm thinking about that that's all that's all that's all Ram, which isn't the name that I use, but it's all just Ram. Let me just give you an example of how, how stubborn I was. And this is just an aside. I, I know people like Maharaji's story, so I'm throwing in a Maharaji story as a gratuitous thing to allow me to talk about how much I love him. Anyway, a bunch of us have gone to these Goenka retreats, meditating for weeks at a time. and. Uh, there are a lot of people there who had not been to Maharaji, but they they talked to some of us when the treats were over and they found there was this guy Maharaji and it was free. In fact, if you were broke, he'd give you money and that Ramdas was there. And it sounded pretty great. So a lot of people followed us back from Bodh Gaya, where the ox cart was, the water buffalo actually it was, pulling the cart with the bell on the neck, back to Allahabad, where Maharaji was staying at Dada's house, Dada Mukherjee's house. So it was not a temple, it was this guy's house. And all of a sudden, there's like way too many people. So Maharaji called the old timers in one at a time and said, get out of here for a few weeks. Let the new people have some space. I want you to go somewhere. So there was this fellow named Vishu, who was my closest friend. He had he had been going to he was he got his bachelor's degree at Stanford the same year I got my PhD. And Ramdas asked him and me to run Muktananda's Northern California part of the world tour. We did that, and then we lived in San Francisco together, and then we ended up at Muktananda's Ganeshpuri ashram together, and then we and ended up with uh Maharaji together. So I'm on this big adventure, and everywhere I go, there's this guy issue that I loved him, but it was kind of like, I'd kind of like to get away from him so that it's like my adventure, not our adventure, right? Okay. So he gets called in before me and he comes out and says, Maharaji told me to go to Benares. Now it's called Varanasi, but in those days it was Benares. So he leaves and then I get called in and Maharaji says, Benares Jao, go to, go to Benares. I said, Maharaji, couldn't I go to Ayodhya? It's such a holy place. That's where Ramos was seated. He said, nay, Banaras Jao. 
And I, I even argued one more time, you know, please. He said, no, no, Benares Jiao. So I go to the, I, he, when he says go, it means like go immediately. So I got my bag, I packed my bag, I went to the train station. I figured, you know, like here's where we are and here's, here's Ayodhya and here's Benares. It's kind of like the triangle fair. I'm going to go to Benares, but I'm going to kind of swing by Ayodhya on the way. I'm going to take the... So Ayodhya is this tiny little town right outside of this big town called Faisabad. And I bought a ticket to the Faisabad Express. I didn't get a ticket to the Benares Express. I got the Faisabad Express. As I was very bad. That's so stubborn. And there's a big sign over the uh, ticket counters. And it says Faisabad Express, track number 10 at noon. So I go to track number 10. It's noon, one, two. No train. It's only two hours late. It's India. It doesn't seem too unusual. But then that some guy in an Indian train uniform walks by. And I said, hey, what about the Faisabad Express? He said, oh, it came on track number seven today. We announced it in Hindi. And it it's came on time. It's been gone for two hours. And I'm thinking, you know, I didn't speak Hindi. I didn't want to hear all that babble in the background. And I'm sitting there. I'm standing there, and at that exact moment, a train pulled in right behind me. I turned around, and right at eye view, like five feet in front of me, it said Benares Express. I swear to God, it was like right in my face. So I got on this train. I figured, okay. And I didn't even have a ticket for the, that that train. I had a cheaper ticket. And the, the conductor took my ticket. He didn't say anything. I got to Benares. And somebody had told me about this place called the Venkateshwar Lodge. So I figured I would go there. Banaras is a huge place with so many hotels because it's all full of pilgrims. And I go to the Venkateshwar Lodge. I get a, a room. I, I go into the room. I put my bag on the floor. I lie down. I put my head to the pillow. And at that exact moment in the room directly above me, Vishu starts singing the Hanuman Chalisa. Out of all the rooms in India, he was directly above me singing the Hanuman Chalisa. So I figured, well, it looks like I'm not, not getting away from him anytime soon, right? And we had the best time together. We were swimming in the Ganges with body parts floating by as if it were a pool. The Indians thought we were completely crazy. And we actually felt closer to Maharaji than when we were with that whole crazy, all the people wanting a piece of him and what was going on there. Uh, back in in the place where we were all together. So I'm finally getting beyond my stubbornness. I, he's worn me down. I've worn me down. Life has worn me down. That just the simple practice of saying this name again and again and again. Ramana himself says, Japa is our real nature. Japa, the repetition, the repetition of the name. When I read Ramana's books, really the two things he talks about are self-inquiry and saying God's name. And in fact, there's this wonderful saint, Namdev, who uh, his whole thing was mantra. And Ramana had Namdev's book right at the side of his bed during the later part of his life. Namdev said, the whole universe is densely permeated with the name. And he said, all form is name. Name is form. So just think about that for a second. The entire universe is densely permeated with the name. Whether you're saying the mantra or not, what's being said here is that every molecule, every being, every thought is the expression of what the name is. And the name is, the name is not pointing at God. The name is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay. Uh, just last night, I pulled out a book about prayer, thinking I might find something great to talk about today. And there was a piece of paper stuffed in the book, and it had this quote from St. Teresa of Avila. The only mistake in prayer, the only mistake in prayer is to pray as if God were not present. The only mistake in prayer is to pray as if God were not present. So each time you're saying Ram, 
Each time you're saying ma, each time you're saying, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. Whatever it is, that's not, it's not, I mean, it can be, you can think of it as an asking for God to show up. You can think of it as, hey, I've got this great relationship with God. Or it's God. It's emptiness. It's fullness. It's so empty that it's full. There's no grasping. So what, what practice do you have when the shit hits the fan? What, what, pract- what happens if Trump gets elected again and he starts throwing people in jail that he doesn't like? Right? What happens when your friends start getting cancer or heart disease, or maybe it's happening already? Right? So, let me slow down a second. Thomas Merton said, Love and prayer are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart turns to stone. Love and prayer are learned when prayer becomes impossible and the heart turns to stone. So John, when you, when you think about how horrific it is what's going on, how many people are dying in the Middle East, can you remember those Rumi poems? That they're, they're both true at the same time. Yes, it's horrific. And everything that Rumi said, everything that Christ said, everything that Buddha said, everything that Ramana said is not in any way negated by all this craziness that's happening in the world. Can we open to grace in every moment by seeing no distinction between the sacred and the mundane? Can we catch hold of the very first moment of perception? rather than naming it and conceptualizing it, and just being with the vibration of each arising moment. And that vibration is the name. It's permeated with the name. Digesting emotions rather than being digested by the emotions. Digesting the mother rather than being eaten by her moment to moment. Uh, Saying mantra, doing practice from this more tantric or even non-dual sensibility. The great Tibetan master Tulko Urjan Rinpoche, the father of Sokni Rinpoche and Mingyur Rinpoche, said the following thing. The only way to acquire all the great qualities of enlightenment is to repeat many times the short moment of recognizing mind essence. There is no other method. One reason for short moments is that As there is no stability right now, the recognition of awareness doesn't last for more than a brief moment, whether we like it or not. By practicing many times, we get used to it. And let me, I'm going to put that great quote into the chat if anybody wants to, oh, how do the, Boom, there it is in the chat for you to grab if you want. The only way to acquire all the great qualities of enlightenment is to repeat many times the short moment of recognizing mind essence. Everybody in this virtual room has been in that place of profound openness whether through meditation or being in nature or taking psychedelics or raising a child or on and on, playing music. Can we keep repeating that moment? What is more important than bringing that openness into our daily activity? And that let me also let me read a longer poem here, and then we'll open this up to discussion. This is a poem by Saint Simeon, the new theologian. He's a Orthodox Christian, a desert father. Uh, those old desert fathers really knew about prayer. They they really approached prayer almost like mantra. They would take a short prayer and just repeat it, repeat, repeat it. 
We awaken in Christ's body as Christ awakens our bodies. And my poor hand is Christ. He enters my foot and is infinitely me. I move my hand and wonderfully my hand becomes Christ, becomes all of him. For God is indivisibly whole, seamless in his Godhood. I move my foot and at once he appears like a flash of lightning. Do my words seem blasphemous? Then open your heart to him and let yourself receive the one who is opening to you so deeply. For if we genuinely love him, we wake up inside Christ's body. Where all our body, all over, every most hidden part of it, is realized in joy as him. And he makes us utterly real in everything that is hurt, everything that seems so dark, harsh, shameful, maimed, ugly, irreparably damaged, is in him transformed and recognized as whole, as lovely, and radiant in his light. He awakens as the beloved in every last part of our body. I rest my case. Most of us live within the confines of our identity as a separate self that is desperately trying to stabilize its existence. But we all have this natural freedom, this Christ in every cell of our body, though it's often unrecognized. In the Heart Sutra, it begins by saying, indescribable, inconceivable, and inexpressible, the perfection of sublime knowing is unborn and unceasing, the very nature of space. It is the realm of your own self-knowing, timeless awareness. Indescribable, inconceivable, and inexpressible, resting in that. Okay, let's open this up for discussion. Distraction from unbounded awareness. Happy New Year. Um, I wanted to ask about devotion, um, kind of in the opposite way where you said that the prior... Um, approach to, I think it was like spaciousness wasn't really working for you. And then you um, did it through the like lens of devotion. It seems to have like really clicked for you. I feel like I have the opposite experience where I have, I would like to kind of foster uh, that uh, sense of connectedness through devotion. Um, but it has been something that is a bit confusing or challenging for me. Um, and so, in order to kind of work with that, I'm kind of curious about advice or how one would go about finding. And I was also reminded of the quote that you had shared um, a few times where um, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. And I think that's kind of like where I'm at and like how to... And also similarly, like finding a mantra that also like resonates with you. And so kind of finding the direction for um, the path of devotion in that sense, I feel a little bit like um, aimless or a little bit lost. And I'm curious about how people would go about finding that sort of direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great question. Maybe the best question. And... I'm kind of exaggerating when I say that the emptiness thing didn't work. The emptiness thing got me to the place where I could finally begin to feel my heart enough that that was really empty enough to feel full, right? 
And in truth, I was doing both of these things simultaneously ever since I started taking LSD back in the 1960s, right? So it's not, it's, in, in my case, it hasn't been really one or the other, but I'm just saying that it's only lately, maybe in the last few months that I've gotten to the point where I've given up trying to understand things and have just simply said, just saying a mantra is, is enough. That, that I don't have to, I don't have to be more clever. I don't have to understand anything. Krishnamurti's title of the, his book, Freedom from the Known. I just love that title. Free, we, we don't have to know the peace that passes understanding. So very few of us have the luxury of having a teacher who says, do this and don't do that. And after you've done that for a while, then stop doing that and do this other thing. Right, be a vegetarian, and now you can eat some meat. And now you should get divorced, and now you should say a mantra, and all that we're going to change. That you and I pretty much have to make those decisions on our own through our interaction with life itself. And the one one tech tactic that I'm really big on is threatening God. Uh, just saying, hey, I'm working hard. I really, I really want some information now. And if you don't do that, I'm going to be really mad at you. And God doesn't want you to be mad at her. So to, to really ask for the next step, whatever that might be, to ask for the next step. Uh, I'm kind of joking about the threat, but to really ask from the depth of your heart and if if you're the like me, you have that kind of personality where you like to threaten God, then that's fun too. Uh, it's been my experience that again and again in my life, I've reached a point where I felt kind of blocked, that my my practice was stale, that I didn't feel like I was going anywhere. And depending on how stubborn I was, that would go on for a short amount of time or for a long amount of time. But it seemed like what would often happen is I finally get so frustrated, I would make some commitment to myself. I, I remember one time after, it was a long time ago, but I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I'd just been teaching with Ramdas at the first summer at Naropa. I'd come back from India. I, I wasn't going to be a mathematician anymore. I had no, tr tr no saleable skills other than being a mathematician, which I didn't want to be. And I made a vow that I was going to meditate two hours every day. And I did that. It was like really hard some days. Some days I, I was tired. I didn't want to do it. I was busy. And out of that came this very clear message that here's the next step in your life. Here's the thing to do. It turned out it was going with Ramdas to New York and being with Joya, who, even though that ended up having its own story involved, that was kind of crazy. It really shifted things. And that's happened any number of times where I, I didn't know what to do next. So I, I, I made some commitment to settle down and be as fully present now as I could be. And the next message then appeared. I trust your heart, Meadows. You, you will find the next message. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate your response. Yeah, I, I have a question. Um, how does one separate or become clear about whether one is operating from one's ego or one's soul. Well, Craig seems to have a talent for asking the most difficult questions. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a very tricky question, of course, because the ego is very tricky. The ego... It likes to disguise itself and tell you that you're you're paying attention to your heart when it's really ego clinging. For me, and I think for a lot of people, I get a lot of my information from my body. And when I'm acting, 
from a motivation of clinging or egoic reference as opposed to openness. There's a different feeling in my body, sometimes quite subtle. Uh, for example, and I don't, I don't really remember, Craig, how long you've been coming to these things, but I've talked a lot about grounding and centering, that my experience is that a lot of people in the West, and particularly meditators, aren't necessarily very embodied. And that getting grounded and centered inhabiting the first three chakras is really a prerequisite for able, being able to rest in the heart, to let a mantra be enough and be simple, if you will. As long as there's the guilt, fear, and shame roiling around in the unprocessed parts of the lower chakras, then what we've been talking about today will all only happen very, very sporadically. So for an example, they say that when you're centered, let, let me say this differently, that when you're not centered, that for almost all people, your shoulders come up a little bit, shoulders should, I should be doing something rather than letting the universe do it through you. And there's there's a tightness in your lower belly and your hara. So that becoming centered is releasing the shoulders, releasing the lower belly, but at the same time, bringing some strength to the lower belly. And that's a whole other discussion about being centered, which we've done before, and we're not going to do right now in any depth. But if I have any question about how, how true is this voice that's trying to get me to act is, is this my true nature or is this ego trying to trick me here into doing something that's co coming from a place of contraction? Then I, kind of, I ask my body, where am I coming from in my body? What does it feel like? How comfortable, how open, how, how much can I inhabit my belly? What does it feel like in my, in my heart? Hope that helps. Thank you. Nicholas. Yes, um, thank you, Dale. Um, I wanted to ask um, a question in regard to distraction. And I I'm just wondering how to remain relevant and connected in a world that is so much about distractions. I mean, I have the option of checking out and sometimes that feels a bit arrogant, like I'm just not going to engage. Um, and I'm going to retrieve, retreat to my cave, or I have the option of engaging and also being conscious about the, the amount of noise that's surrounding me, which I see and feel and sense all the time. I mean, most of what I get is about noise. So I don't know how to find a balance between that engaging and knowing and or retreating and in an arrogant way and saying, I'm not even listening to this. Okay, well, first of all, one can retreat and it not be arrogant. It can be that that's what you need to do right now. And uh, I think that retreating occasionally is very healthy for almost everybody. Uh, traditionally, most religions have a Sabbath where you take one day off a week where you don't get engaged with society in a certain way. You, you go within, you're quieter. Uh, my friend Wayne Muller wrote a book called Sabbath, which is really a wonderful book. At the same time, I don't think necessarily that it has to be one or the other that that cave you were talking about can be carried around with you to a certain extent. And that was, that was in some sense, the point I was trying to make today about distraction that I've been finding that there are so many moments during the day where I am busy, but it's a moment that's available to saying my mantra or the mantra that Maharaji gave me or whatever we call it. Uh, and that I've been noticing that the tendency for is that if I'm not 
doing something during those moments, doing something in a in a focused way that the mind just tends to wander around. Uh, that's what minds do. That the tendency is to move, so that even if you're in the world, there are so many short little spaces during the day when you can either say a mantra or get grounded and centered, or even as Tuku Urjan said, that uh, the only way to acquire all the great qualities of enlightenment is to repeat many times the short moment of recognizing mind essence. That just, uh, that just many, many repeated short practices in a busy day. Uh, there's a guy in LA, used to be a Buddhist monk, and he's made a fortune talking about five-minute meditations. <laughs> it's like, uh, and I haven't made a fortune talking about similar things. Okay, so <laughs> carry the cave with you. It's not one or the other. Honor the Sabbath. Thank you so much. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.